So on this Military Appreciation Day thing, if you are so inclined that you like to build things and hammer and screw things together, on the 21st, the week before that, at 10 a.m., they're all getting together and building a bunch of, like, carnival booze. Booze. I have a hard time saying that. I don't know. It's like I'm saying booze when I say it. I'm making these booths. And if you want to, 10 a.m., come on down and you can help them do that. Talk to Christy in the back if you if you want more information about that. But it would be kind of cool. Um, so... Last week, somebody left this here. I don't know if it's yours, but there isn't, there's no back on it, and the SIM card's missing. So I don't know if it's like some terrorist plot to like blow some up, but they put the SIM, like Jack Bauer saved us and took the SIM card out or something. I don't know. But if it's yours, you can come grab it. Or not, and I can use that as a joke next service too. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called YouVersion. Click on Live in YouVersion. You'll get all the sermon notes and the questions and verses that we'll go through this morning as well. And lastly, uh, if you are new also, our decor. This is meant to feel like you're in a tent. Uh, it's Some people show up and they're new. They're like, this is weird. Well, yeah, it is. It's meant to represent covenant and relationship, and this is at where we're at kind of in the book of Genesis. It's moving forward into this whole idea of relationship, so we did this as a tent. Christmas is going to look so much different, but I really, I kind of dig this. It makes me feel like I want to go to sleep. It's all warm and nice and whatever. All right. Why don't you guys stand me? You're reading God's Word. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who are thankful for everything, and that we would honor you with the gifts that you have given to us, and that we would learn how to give to you as you call us to so that in all ways you are lifted up and you are glorified by how your people live. Amen. Have a seat. Now, are the days getting shorter? Have they gotten there yet? Did we hit the, like, the apex and it's going back? Because I got this morning, I thought, man, it's darker this morning when I was... That was just the overcastness or not. Welcome to Santa Maria, but seriously. It has nothing to do with my message, by the way. I was just talking. I don't know why. All right, uh, we're in the book of Genesis. This is week 24. If you have a Bible, open to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Uh, today I'm going to warn you up front, I, you may feel like I'm all over the map in what we're talking about, but we have a lot to cover. I'm going to launch in kind of quick here. Uh, today you get one of the most, I think, amazing and awesome and curious things that you find in the scriptures. Now last week where we left off is Abraham is an old guy at 75 years old. He goes out and grabs his hunting buddies, three of them, and all the men of his household, and they go out to save his idiot nephew Lot. Now Lot had moved outside this town called Sodom, the king of Sodom. Sodom rebelled against his king, and that king came in and just kind of wiped everybody out and took everybody in Sodom away as a possession. Abraham hears about it, grabs his three redneck hunting buddies, goes out and saves his knucklehead nephew, Lot. And so Abraham wins this great victory. He brings all these people back, and as he does this, two kings come out to meet him. You have the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Uh, The king of Salem is one of the most curious people in all of the Bible. Everybody wants to debate who he is, so we'll just
just kind of jump into this. Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, you'll very quickly see a very clear distinction between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, Melchizedek. The text tells you Abraham is met in the king's valley. It's a subtle hint that you're going to find out who the real king is in the king's valley very shortly. Now, there's some differences between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Sodom means scorched or burnt. It is constantly referred to as a place of evil, where Salem is suggestive of shalom, the peace of God, everything in the right place, in the right way, in the right time. The king of Sodom, you will see, just has all this stuff saved by Abraham, yet he comes out to meet him empty-handed, and the first word he says is give. The first two words he says is give me. Melchizedek, on the other hand, was not hauled off in war. Melchizedek just shows up out of nowhere, and we are told he brought out bread and wine, and he eventually blesses Abraham. The king of Sodom references himself, me, 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 and makes sure he gets what is his. The king of Salem, in turn, blesses Abraham and points to the Most High God. And there is a huge difference between wanting to be blessed and learning how to actually be a blessing. Melchizedek again shows up out of nowhere. Salem is thought to be short for Jerusalem, but Jerusalem isn't even a city yet. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It says Melchizedek, king of Salem. So he's the king of righteousness in front of the king of the place of peace. Brought out bread and wine. Sounds a little bit like communion. He was a priest of God most high. Now, if you've gone with us through Genesis to this point, do we even have priests yet? No, we don't have priests yet. So who is this guy? Jerusalem out of nowhere, priest out of nowhere. And it says, and he blessed him. Now, if you've been in Genesis up to this point again, who is the only person so far who has blessed Abraham? God. <laughs> when you're in church, you know, just pick God. You might be, you'll be good half the time whenever you say it. You'll, you'll, you'll be fine. This, this guy sounds a little bit like Jesus. So he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham uh, by God most high. This is the first time this term is used of God most high. Elohim Elyon means God most high. Shows that this person worships the real God. Possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So why does Abraham win this battle? God. That is why he wins the battle. It wasn't Abraham's plan. It wasn't his numbers. It wasn't his smarts. We definitely know it wasn't his age. It was God. This whole passage underlines his reliance on God rather than military might when God brings about any blessing into our lives. So how does Abraham respond to this? The very next line says, and Abraham gave a tenth of everything. Now, in this, you'll see a whole bunch of firsts here. You got the first war last week, the first Hebrew, uh, and now's the first tithe. There's a lot in here. I'm going to take a lot of time doing with this, but you're probably thinking, oh, no, he's after my wallet today. Well, no, and yes. We'll see how this all works out in the end. It says, he gave, he gave a tenth to Melchizedek. He gives a tenth to the Lord by giving it to Melchizedek. This is the idea of giving your first and your best, your first fruits. It's a recognition that everything that we have belongs to God. Giving first belongs to God. Abraham does this without the law. The law hasn't been given yet. So how does he know to even do this? Because he is in covenant relationship with God. Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So how does he know this? Because God has written it on his hearts, just like he does for you and I today. We no longer have these tablets of stone. We have hearts that God writes upon. And this is how he knows. So Abraham's beginning to understand that all he has is a gift. Now, if you look where we were a couple weeks ago, 
Abraham's going down to Egypt, very fearful, pimps his wife out in fear. You come just three weeks later, look at the difference in this guy's life and where he's at. This is phenomenal growth. So let me set this up as best I can so you can get this. Uh, the biggest problem in our world today, it is not Muslims or terrorism or the economy. It's that we love ourselves more than we love our God, and that is idolatry. We constantly give to ourselves, and that is false worship. I tell you this a lot, that we buy things that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. We do this all the time, and we think our money is our money, and our time is our time, and our days are our days, and our life is our life, and we believe that we are like God and that we should know good and evil. Actually, we think we're better than God because we think we know better than he does what is right and wrong, and we assume when something goes bad in our life because of our own choices, it's God's fault. So we think he's unskilled. We take our life into our own hands, and this is the essence of all sin pride. Augustine says this. Now, Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. This means you're supposed to be humble. Now, in my life, guys, I am a hypocrite as well. I mean, I've lived my life in many ways where I think I know better than God and I choose my own way, and it's sin on my part. But we all do this. We all think of ourselves as knowing better than God how to create and live in a world. And we make our own little world around us that we can then have our own way. We want to define what is sin and what not is sin. We want to define what's righteousness and what righteousness is not. We want to define law. We want to define heaven. We want to define hell. We want to define God. We want to define who's in and who's out. And we wage war against God and rule over our own little kingdom as best as we can. This is called sin. Sin makes us an enemy of God. Our sin reaches up to heaven and it stinks. Romans 6.23 reminds us the wages for our sin is actually death. You know that God has every right in our lives to actually strike us? We have no right to cry out for, to God for mercy, for a changed heart, for a changed life, for forgiveness, for redemption. We live blind to the truth, and we do not see God. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I mean, we even want to argue with God about things he clearly states in his word and say, Oh, no, no, he didn't really mean that. Well, it's clearly stated in his word. See, our enemy is very cunning, and he convinces us that the life we live apart from God is as good as it gets that the curse that humanity lives under because of its own choice is normal, that war against God is normal. And it's not. It's not normal. And so what has God done for you and I? And all the way back in Genesis 3, God makes a promise that he will involve himself in this situation. That is his mercy and his grace. If I did to you what we have done to God, you would show me no mercy whatsoever. We rob God of his glory. We rob God of his money, using the body that he even gives us to participate in things that dishonor him. But God, in his mercy, promised that he would find us because we are the ones that are lost. And God comes to find us. He came for us. That's the great hope of the gospel. That God not only came for us, but he came as one of us. This is the whole idea of Christmas and the baby and the manger that we all love because it all points to God coming for us. This is all foreshadowed in this guy, Melchizedek, who shows up to meet Abram. I mean, Jesus, to redeem us, humbles himself, lives with us. We made such a mess of our lives in the world, just like Abraham, that God had to enter into the stench of death humbly. Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8 says, This is the humility of God. I mean, you and I in America, all we think about is our rights. I have my rights. Don't, don't take my rights. I mean, we get so offended. Like, Look at people when they drive around the roundabout. They just drive you crazy. Learn how to drive in the roundabout. You don't have to stop. You're offending me. 
because we think we're God and we think it's all about us. But see, God comes. It's totally different. God empties himself of his rights and his glory and comes to us like Melchizedek came to Abram. He takes on flesh as Jesus. He gets tempted in every way that we are, yet he does not give in. Instead, he glorifies the Father. Jesus chose obedience instead of self-idolatry. Most Christian commentators agree when you see Melchizedek, it's actually Christ making a cameo. We call this a theophany in the Old Testament. He says in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Psalm 110, it all talks about Melchizedek. And I think when you see Melchizedek, you need to think of Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, the priest would intercede between God and men. Eventually, you get an entire priesthood. You get an entire temple system. And it all points to Jesus, who was our final high priest, who was our sacrifice, who was the lamb laid down. That is all Jesus. And the gospel is not God blessing us so we get to be glorified. And this is the, this is the whole idea. Abraham goes out, he wins this battle, he comes back, and what does the priest of God say to him? It's not because of you. It's because of God that you won this battle. Christians today get told such a different gospel. See, Jesus did not come so you can fulfill your potential. We already fulfilled our potential, and he had to die because of it. And there's this bizarre teaching out there that God is there to bless us. That is idolatry. I mean, God does bless us, but that's simply God's grace. And we think if God's not blessing us the way that we want to be blessed, then we get mad at God. Well, God, I'm supposed to be rich. Or God, I'm supposed to be married. God, I'm supposed to be having better sex. What's wrong with you, God? What are you doing? And we get all mad at him. Because we think this is my body, my body and my money and my days and it's all about me. That is American individuality. It is not Christianity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So when Jesus comes and he dies for me, I was once a slave to sin and death, and now I can actually belong to God. God transforms me with his love and his grace, so I belong to him. There is no third option in the gospel where you get to self-actualize. There is no option in there for that. As a matter of fact, Romans 1, 6 says, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We are called to belong to him. And God is constantly reaffirming this in Abraham's life as he does for you and I as we read the scriptures and through these stories. Because the heart of Christianity is belonging to Jesus. That's it. So it is not my time. It is Jesus' time. It is not my money. It is Jesus' money. It is not my body. It is Jesus' body. It is not my days. It is Jesus' days. Before in our lives were all these things dishonored God. They are now redeemed. They are all at his disposal. It is now to do everything that they were created actually to do, which is to honor him. And some people say, well, that's just totally awful. God thinks everything is his. (laughs) Well, yes, he does, because it is his. You know, and I'll tell you, when God gets glory, people find joy. And if you want happiness and joy, you will never find as much joy as when God gets glory and you participate with him in the work of the gospel, even when it's tough. Let me, let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about how the gospel works just in our little area at Element. Uh, Element, we started uh, a few years ago with, uh, in, in December with 65 people at a little informational meeting about what we were going to do. And then we actually started uh, kind of in January, but about 40 people showed up. So I lost 25 off the top. Woohoo, go us. All right. Uh, half this room was filled with garbage to here. People who came had to come in their lawn chairs. We, we took a propane heater, set it up over in this corner because the heater didn't work. And so we're like just blowing all this hot air through the room. I did not know a propane heater inside was illegal at the time would i do it again Eh, i don't know depends on how cold i was but anyway it was illegal (laughs) and so people started working on this place patching walls making a a usable space and then you then we hit our our first easter service now easter service churches usually double in size i mean now if you you come to one of ours we can't really double in size because the room's full and and all that so people like i'll go somewhere else or whatever but the first easter service we had 140 people show up 
Just amazing. And then, but then after that, you know, obviously we dropped back down. Well, by the end of that first year, we're running about 150 people. So that's 400% growth from where we started. Uh, the two years in, we were running 200. That's another 25% growth. Three years in, we're running about 260. That's another 25% growth. Today, we're running about 350. Now, I, I don't tell you that because it's about numbers. I tell you it's about people living on mission for the gospel. Th- this is the point. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is why you come in here and sometimes I'm just yelling at you and sometimes I'm funny and sometimes I'm yelling and sometimes I'm not yelling so much. But we always preach the gospel from day one. We tell you it is about Jesus. It is not about us. And so we believe that the gospel has the power to change people's lives. The average church in America today is 75 to 80 people. The average church plant today takes five years to reach 200 people if they're going to reach it. We will probably double that by our year five. So you are unusual. Yes, you are. You are all unusual, actually. And, and this is the whole idea. This, this is Jesus' church. It is not mine. It is not yours. People will say to me, go, how's your church going? I said, well, it's not my church. And they think I'm just joking. I am not joking. It is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And so we give personally and as a church because all we have is not ours. And so Melchizedek shows up. Abraham gives. It's not a story about money. It's a story about the gospel. But those two things actually go together. I think Solomon's kind of being funny in Ecclesiastes 10.19. And he says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. <laughs> well, I think it's, okay, thanks. Well, some people think it's funny. I do. I don't know if you're aware, but we live in a society where things cost money. I'm just throwing it out there for you so you know. Uh, Abraham's day, it was the same way. They didn't have dollar bills, obviously, but they had a way to exchange something for goods and services. And Abraham gives a tenth of all that he has to God. And I have a lot of people ask, well, how's Element doing? You know, I'll give you some hard, cold facts on numbers and giving. And just don't be all sad when you're offended at how bad we actually are. So I'll just tell you. Uh, the average income in Santa Maria is a little over $40,000. You may think, oh, I don't make $40,000. Well, you can be average one day. I'm sure you'll get there, all right? Uh, come on, you're a tough crowd. If we never had, if we never had any growth at Element anymore with the family units we have, you will generate $480 million in one generation. Now that's a lot of money God's gonna send through our hands. And you may say, well what difference can I even make? Well when you get a whole group of people going the same direction, it can make a gigantic wave. And Jesus says he's given us a lot. He's expecting a lot. For Element, that's a huge responsibility for all of us. It's a lot that God has given us, a lot he's expecting. This is, this is one of the reasons why we always talk about giving after the message, because it's a response to what God has said to us throughout the scriptures. That's how it works. We give because he first gave to us. Now, I, I think our staff works very hard here. We used to actually do four services, and we knocked out that wall on the back where a lot of you are sitting, and now we can actually went back to three services. You're saving my sanity a little bit uh, by doing this. But you walk around, you look at our rooms, all the kids, things, you think things are going pretty well. But I'll just throw something out to you here. Uh, today, on average, one out of every 14 people who come to Element Stores will give. If you divide that out over everybody who comes, it ends up being about $14.57 a person. Now, we go out to a movie, and we spend what? I went and saw Spider-Man last week, which you all should go see because it's awesome. Okay? Uh, and I went to a matinee, my wife and I, Mikey. And we, anyway, we went, and it was like 22 bucks for my wife and I to go. 22 bucks for a matinee! I remember when a matinee was like 2 3 bucks. I even had the 99-cent movie thing for a while. But okay, so like 22 bucks. And if you, what if you go to a normal movie? I mean, like, a, like a nighttime movie, like normal people do, right? Not the cheapskate like me. You go to normal, it's like, what was it, 26, 28 bucks? Oh, it's in 3D. Oh, crap, that's another 40. You know, I don't, what, 
you know, I got a Regal card, so I get my, I'm not, you know, trying to get any money out of Regal here, but, but I got my free popcorn, so, oh, thank goodness. But if you go buy popcorn, that's like six bucks for a small. Oh, I want a small soda, that's seven dollars, right? And then usually for a movie, a movie's kind of a long time, so you eat before you eat after. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, you spend like 70, 80 bucks to go see a movie. I go buy my candy at Albertsons and sneak it in like Jesus intended. <laughs> my wife and I, she's like, I can't fit anymore in here. She's like, What's in there? Nothing. You know. In fact, standing in front of the movie theater going, who wants milk duds? Five bucks. You know? Now, obviously, you know, we, we come to church. You're not expected to give. It's, it's, it's free in that. But I'll tell you, our life is not just about us. It is every dollar, every day, everything is God's. And if we live as if it is only ours, then that's a problem. Abraham gives a tenth. A tenth of everything. In the New Testament, there's not a set amount in this of what's required. The scripture simply tells you it's supposed to be joyful, generous, sacrificial, and consistent. That's how we are supposed to give. Joyful, generous, sacrificial, consistent. And at Element, you can give in offering boxes. You can give online. I give online. I don't write checks. I think the last check I wrote, I looked up and I was like, holy cow, my last check before this was two years before because I just do everything online nowadays. And sometimes the board and the elders' job, it gets tough this way because we can't afford to hire more staff and we'd actually like to at this point. We'd love to hire one of our elders, Eric Jafruti. I think our gospel communities would function much better having somebody who has that much hands-on on them all the time and that's one of the main focuses of what we do is gospel communities. I think it'd help our staff to function better because we need to... A little, someone kind of ride roughshod over us sometimes because we're just a little crazy half the time. And we could actually do that. I mean, I think that our budget and our staff is, is pretty lean. We cut a lot of departments this year. But when we have 350 people come and one out of 14 give, it gets a little tough sometimes. And sometimes when I talk about money, people say, well, it's none of your business. This is too personal. If, we, if you think that way, then you're thinking it's your body and your business and your money and that you are God. Because I don't want a big church. I want a church that's simply faithful. I want a faithful church. And see, I, I want people who love God and serve Him, or I'd actually have people who don't know Him at all. That's, that's who I would want working in here. But unfortunately, in America, churches usually fill it fat right in the middle. Just right in the middle. People don't really give. They don't really do anything. Oh, I love Jesus, but they don't really serve. They don't really do a whole lot of anything. There's people who think they know God, but they actually don't. And this is why I preach the gospel. So you and I both understand it. Because when I preach to you, I'm preaching to me at the same time. And the gospel includes how we see our stuff, because it is God's stuff. Now, some of our stuff, we probably need to step back and ask, well, would God own this stuff? And if you've got, like, a huge porn collection, I don't think God would own that stuff. You probably need to get rid of it. If you've got, like, hanging out at the head shop and you've got a whole bunch of bongs and a bunch of pot in the backseat of your car, I don't think God would own that. You need to get rid of that stuff. Don't sell it to somebody else and just put it on them. Just get rid of that stuff. We need to learn how to understand it is all God's stuff. When Abraham meets God, he gives. The first thing he does is give. I'll also tell you this. Element as a church, when you guys give to us, the first thing we do is we take 10% right off the top. And we set it aside in an account that's called uh, Church Planting and World Relief. It goes, it gets set aside right from the very outset because we give as well. Too often in our world today, people give what's called leftovers, whatever is left over. But at the end of the month, there's not a whole lot left over because we, because we spent it all. Abraham gives on the front and entrusts God for the rest. The question is, do we actually do that? And I know in all of our lives we've all messed this up, but we could always do better. That's why our tomorrows are in front of us and not behind us. A priest's job was to come and take care of the sins of the people. Jesus does that, and he opens up our tomorrows. Hebrews 7.17 says that he lives forever. He's never going to be replaced, so we simply need to trust him. 
And I think in truth, when you get to the end of this, Abraham's faith was in Jesus, the one who had come. Everything in Genesis points to Jesus. Everything. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And Abraham responds in worship, and he gives something to God. And in these few chapters of last week's and the week before and then a couple weeks after this, you will see Abraham's faith demonstrated in three different ways. Abraham demonstrates what's called a passive faith. He goes to his nephew Lot and said, you go right, I'll go left, you go left, I'll go right. He simply trusts the providence of God and leaves it in God's hands. The second type is called active faith. Active faith. This is his nephew gets abducted. He goes to war, grabs his redneck buddies, rides off to save him. He pursues God's agenda actively. This is also like when we give. This is actively pursuing our faith. And then also there's what's called prayerful faith. What you will see in a couple weeks is that Lot moves back to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's moved right outside of Sodom because he's a brilliant guy, apparently. And God's going to end up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham finds out about it and he prays. He doesn't just give up. He doesn't go grab his redneck buddies again to go in and save the day. He prays and goes to bed. Somebody last week asked me, how many times do I need to go and, and rescue somebody? And I said, well, eventually Abraham gets to the point where he just prays and he goes to bed and leaves it in God's hand. And eventually God pulls Lot out of Sodom because of Abraham's prayer. Our faith needs to move in multiple lanes. We've got to learn this. And sometimes it's a passive faith where we trust God and his providence. But sometimes we're so passive we never do anything at all. Now, sometimes we need to be in an active faith and we go and we do things. But sometimes that could also be sin if we never pray about it and we jump into everything around us. Sometimes people just pray and intercede all the time and never do anything. We are called to live a multi-lane faith. And you see Abraham do this. And I think this is one of the reasons the New Testament lifts him up as a paradigm for faith. If you go all the way back to where we started, Abraham has two kings come to him. The godly king speaks blessing, bless you. This continues to show for all recorded history, our God has never ceased to be a giver to his people. The ungodly king of Sodom comes and says, give us, give me, give me, just like we do. Two different type of people will go through this life, the bless you's and the give me's. The king of Sodom loses his battle. He's a captive, and Abraham liberates him. What should he say to Abraham? Thank you. Thank you. I was being dragged behind a horse, buck naked. Thank you for saving me. But he's a godless guy. Now, the godly guy, Melchizedek, says, God has blessed you with a great victory. And we must constantly remember that our God has saved us from our sin and folly. And so we say thanks, and in that we give as well. And verse 21, this is, so that's how Melchizedek talks. Now, this is how the king of Sodom speaks. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons. Give me. It's first words. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Sounds like Americans. We get over our head, can't pay our bills. Bank takes our house back because they own it. <laughs> and then we all get all in shape. Give my house back to me. What are you doing? Like, we have any power in the situation. At least before the government steps in and whatever. The king of Sodom just got his butt saved again. In humility, he should have said, thanks. In humility, he should have said, you know, hey, I'm the king. I've had a bad day. Can't find my pants. They chopped off my ears. Do you think you could help me out? Nothing. Nothing. This is what Abraham's response to him is. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. This doesn't mean he's fighting God. This is like if you and I are like, so I swear to God, this, this is truth. This, this is, it's like an oath. For, anybody ever do that? I swear to God. Just me? All right, all right, whatever. All right. You're weird. All right. <laughs> all right. With my hand of the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, which is very interesting because he now calls God what God just called himself. I really like that. And he begins to now preach at the king of Sodom. You're wicked. God is good. This is what you need. Possessor of heaven and earth, that would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. It's a way of saying that he didn't take anything big or small. It's like a thin or a thick cord is how it would actually translate. In Aramaic, they would say a straw or a string. The Akkadians at this time would actually say be a stalk or a twig. I won't take anything. It says, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
See, Abraham knows it is God's most high who has given him everything. And he never wants anybody able to say that it was anybody but God that did that for him. Abraham made up his mind that when it comes down to his success or God's fame, it's going to go with God's fame every single time. And whatever would benefit him personally, but would harm the reputation of God, he will not do. I mean, if we only lived like that. Because what was more important than Abraham's life was God's name. That's a cool dude. That's a lot of change in a couple chapters. His faith is growing. I mean, God said, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and he actually trusts God to do it. Now, question, who's watching the entire exchange take place? Who has seen what type of person Abraham is? Who has seen what is now important to him? Who sees all that? No. His 318 men, the, the king of Sodom, all the people he saved, his redneck buddies, they all see him living this way, all of his neighbors. This is why Abraham is seen as a man of faith. God knows Abraham's heart. These people now get to see it. He's committed to God and will not waver even when it benefits him. And this is what he says. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So he says, and my, my buddies can actually take some if they want to. Let Anner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. Now, why does he let them do that? Because they're not believers yet. He, they didn't make the vow to God. Only, only he did. And so what you see is Abraham doesn't impose all of his beliefs on these unbelieving men. He says, I belong to God, they don't yet. Abraham doesn't do what so many Christians today want to do, which is where we substitute morality for faith. I mean, you can, guys, you can be moral. Go to hell. I mean, see, all the time. You can eat the salad fork, burp, say, excuse me, and hell. You can be nice, taxpaying, use your turn signal, knows how to use, knows how to use the roundabout, eat a breath mint, so I don't have to smell you, and do that in hell. It's not about being moral people. It is about being God's people. And when people are not in covenant relationship with God, they don't live for him. Abraham knows this, but he doesn't change how he lives. He doesn't let them steamroll or run over him. But what he does do is he doesn't force them. He simply lives his faith publicly in front of them. All these guys are his neighbors and employees and people that he saved. And so where do you think he made this vow not to take anything? In front of all these guys. They're probably going off to war. He's like, hold on, I need to pray for us. I'm sure all these unbelieving guys are going like, well, this is weird. Okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden, they win this victory. They see him worship with Melchizedek. They see him give to Melchizedek. And I believe they all see what it means to truly walk with God. He lives his faith unapologetically in the face of his peers, but never shoves it down their throats. And that is how people see the realness of God, by giving and by grace, and by people seeing how we actually live, and not running and hiding because we're believers, but living our faith unapologetically in front of everybody i mean people will see the truth of christ when we actually live it in the new testament it always says that you know melchizedek and jesus comes in the line of melchizedek as this priest well jesus comes as prophet priest and king forever and jesus actually says that he is greater than abraham you and i all like to think that we're like abraham you know we would have saved people and done this but we again are like lot we're like the king of sodom we are pathetic christians who always end up in the wrong place at the wrong time slaves to sin and death we can't stop sinning and yet jesus comes and he takes all of you and i as these silly foolish people and he fights a battle and he frees us from sin and death like abraham freed lot And then, just like Melchizedek comes, now Jesus comes and he shares with us the blessings of his kingdom. I mean, in the Old Testament, we are a lot like the king of Sodom. We are desperately needy. We have been lost. We've been taken captive. And only Jesus can save and roll over us rightly because only he knows what is best and true and right. And this is why we give. This is why we worship. This is why we honor him. Because when people see that, they will begin to see the realness of God lived out in our lives just like they saw it in Abraham's life. And our faith becomes what it was always meant to be. This is one of the reasons we take you guys to communion every single week. 
This communion is a place that we also not only you know, bow before who Christ is, but we actually say thank you. I mean, the, the table is a great place of thanks because we break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. You remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we say, thank you for saving me because it is what he has done. The band's going to come up and do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, uh, maybe you're like holding on to everything in your life and you don't have the freedom to actually trust him, well, go and pray with them. They'd love to talk to you about it. They're not going to make you feel guilty or weird or anything like that. Uh, there is offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, so giving is simply part of our worship. And so we invite you guys to be able to give. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he says and is doing in our lives. And then there's some food in the back. Uh, and again, like uh, Jennifer was talking about, we need some people to sign up for that because you may come here and there may not be any food in the back. And I know you all like to eat the food in the back. I know I do, but whatever. So, so bring some food. Sign up. Okay, whatever. Golly. Give food. <laughs> this, is, this is the idea. Our, our God has been good to us. We, we were lost. We, we deserve death. We deserve hell. But instead, we get grace and we get life and we get hope, and we get peace, and we get all that God longs to bless us with because he is a good God. And we as a people, in turn, live and give ourselves back to him as a response to our great God giving first to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand the graciousness of you and how you, as our God, have sought and bought us and paid the price for our redemption to pull us out of the sin that we had so willingly run into and brought us home. And as we come home, you speak words of blessing over your people. And that's not always blessing how we think of blessing, but it's the blessing that we need. And I ask that you would teach us to be a little more like Abraham and to give, not just monetarily, but also of all of our lives so that we give to our neighbors. We give to the people around us who need hope and help and prayer. That we give out of the great abundance that you have given to us. And that it would be sacrificial and generous and consistent, but most importantly, joyful. That we would find great joy in pursuing a God who has pursued us and loving a God that has loved us and laying down our lives before a God who laid down his life first for us. We thank you for paying the price for our freedom, for being our ransom. And we ask that starting today and all of our tomorrows, that you would be a foremost focus of our lives and that you would gain great glory and great honor by how we live and how we give. Thank you for saving us and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.